Hello, hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sunday Night Sit Down. I am your host, Miracle Jones. Today, we have a special guest. This evening, we are a couple of weeks out from the May 17th primary election, and our special guest this evening is Representative Con- Congressman Connor Lamb, who is joining us um, because he is running um, as one of the three individuals um, competing for the Senate seat, the Democratic Senate seat here in Pennsylvania. And without further ado, welcome to the Senate Night Sit Down, Connor Lamb. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know you're heavy on the campaign trail. Can you just talk a little bit about what inspired you to enter the Senate race for Pennsylvania? Sure. Uh, I've been serving in the House of Representatives for four years. I was first elected in the spring of 2018. And, um, you know, since that time, we have the Democrats have been in the majority in the House most of that time. And we've passed a number of important bills that I think would really have just made lives better for a lot of people in Western Pennsylvania. Something as simple as raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour um, or, you know, trying to lower people's drug prices. Child care is a big issue for a lot of families. We recently passed a bill that would make it so that no one ever had to spend more than 7% of what they earn on, on child care uh, or maybe of particular interest on this show. Uh, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, uh, we passed a bill called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that would actually reform the way that police departments are run uh, and how they're trained um, and, and impose a lot more accountability on them. Um, and all those things that I, I mentioned and many more, they pass the House of Representatives and then they go nowhere from there. And that's because in the United States Senate, the Republicans have the advantage and they use that mostly just to stop things. They don't usually propose a, another way of doing it or a way of working with us on a lot of these issues. Uh, and so it, it just became clear and clear to me that if we didn't go out and try to win this Senate seat and put the Democrats in the majority, we're just not going to get anything done on a lot of these issues. And I'm, I'm sure you guys probably see this. People are getting impatient. They, they know that we've been campaigning on these promises for a number of years, and they want to know why we're not getting them done. And I don't want to make excuses. I want to do something about it. And that's why I decided to run for the Senate. Thank you so much. I know you talked about the issues that inspired you uh, to run for Senate. Is there a political figure um, or a, a campaign sp- spokesperson that you are looking to right now um, that inspires you and that you model your campaign after? Um, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, you know, what, what inspired me the most probably was um, my grandfather served in the state Senate in Pennsylvania in the 1960s and 70s. It was before I was ever born. But when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time with him and uh, people would come up to him and thank him for something that he did for them 25 years ago. And it was always something very basic, like, uh, you know, he helped somebody get into college or one person, I remember he helped them get their first driver's license uh, and things like that, that people remembered. And, and so I grew up thinking of politics in that way, that like, it was a way to just help people with the little things they need to kind of get through life. Uh, and, and that made me want to serve in a similar way that he had. Um, and you, like I said, you've been campaigning. Has, has there been anything that has surprised you like about this campaign? Um, I, I know, again, we're two weeks out from the election and you've you've been in office before, but has there anything that's been a little bit different from this election than um, any prior election? You know, I think the mood of the country is a little bit different. 
Um, and that has surprised me to a certain extent. I mean, I know the pandemic was tough on, on a lot of people and I think it affected a lot of people's thinking, but, uh, I will say that in, in 2018, when I first ran, there was a lot of energy on the democratic side, I think in reaction to president Trump and trying to take back the house of representatives so that we could hold him accountable. And then a lot of that was translated into 2020 as well, because we also had the presidential campaign to try to replace him. Um, and I'm not sure this year in 2022, if, if our base has that same amount of enthusiasm, I'm not sure. I, I think that they might not. And that that's been, um, you know, of concern to me, cause I think we have a very tough election ahead of us this year. Uh, just midterm elections usually are hard in a president's first term. Uh, and this is obviously a very high stakes Senate seat as we were talking about. So I'm doing everything I can think of to try to eject some, some energy and uplift and morale, uh, into our into our troops here, but it has been a challenge up to this point, I'll admit. I do appreciate like your honesty. And as you're talking about this campaign, you want in boosting morale, what are some of the issues that you are hearing about that people really, really want uh, their senator to address um, come November? Um, most of them are, are economic. So I was talking about, you know, just kind of this issue of, of helping people with their basic costs, right? The, the price of of food, of milk, of gas, all of these things have gone way up. And, you know, most people are earning the exact same amount or receiving the exact same amount in social security that they were before. And so all of a sudden your, your check that you get every week or two weeks, is just not going quite as far. And that's a, that's a scary feeling, right? If all of a sudden you feel like you can't afford the lifestyle that you were used to, that's very threatening. Um, and so I think what people need to be hearing from us is what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to help me kind of get my, my own personal budget back in balance? And that's where I think our proposals on lowering the cost of healthcare, uh, you know, forgiving student debt, and and we've been we've been pausing student debt during the pandemic, but trying to forgive some of it and make the the rest of the loans easier to repay, um, raising people's social security check if you're a senior, uh, lowering the price of drugs, lowering the price of health insurance, uh, all those things they they really can mean something to a lot of the people that we want to represent. So that's that's really my focus. But then the other issue I would say that, that is coming up a lot because I'm spending a lot of time in Philadelphia as well as Pittsburgh is gun violence. Um, and, and I know you're going to ask about that later, but it just really is, again, very scary to people. Uh, parents of young kids are, are looking at another summer where they might have to keep them inside a lot because uh, they're just afraid of what happens when their kids go outside. And that, that, shouldn't, that shouldn't be the case for any child in America. So there's a lot we have to do about that. Uh, thank you. And since you brought it up, we'll just go ahead and delve into it. Public safety continues to be a, a huge pressing issue a lot of cross communities. Um, and there is not, you know, one right answer, one right solution. What are some of the things that you think your administration uh, would be advocating for? And what is your approach to public safety? Yeah, uh, thank you for asking the question that way, because I agree there, there is no one answer. Um, and I think one of the things that separates the Democrats and the Republicans on this issue is whether or not you're willing to look at the the root causes of violence and crime. You know, I think the way the Republicans talk, they think if you just threaten people enough with uh, strict enough sentences and more police and more prosecution, you're going to scare everybody into not committing crimes. Um, there's probably some people that that scares and deters, of course, but I think we all know that, especially in our large cities, there's things happening in the lives of, of young people over time that are are leading them down this road and, and they're not really listening to the, all the Republicans screaming bloody murder about locking people up. Um, there's, there's root causes in other words, and it has to do with poverty. It has to do with 
you know, a legacy of, of mass incarceration that removed a lot of role models from these communities and made it hard for people to, to get work. Um, and it also has to do with, with being in a country where there are just way too many guns and a lot of them move around very freely and illegally. So a lot of the shootings that happen, almost all of them are committed with firearms that the person who's doing the shooting doesn't own or doesn't own legally. Um, that's the kind of work I used to do in the U S attorney's office is trying to stop these firearm traffickers is what they call them. But they're basically people that drive out to Westmoreland County or someplace like that, buy a bunch of guns, um, and then come back into the city or, or Penn Hills or Wilkinsburg or McKee's rocks or whatever the case, and then sell it, uh, to people who are not legally capable of buying a gun. And then those guns end up getting used to crimes. So I think as a Senator, of course, you're not running for the position of police chief or DA or mayor, you know, you don't have as much day-to-day -day impact on the crimes being committed, but an issue like gun trafficking is an issue that we could really affect from the federal level because our ability to do these investigations and do more of them so that we actually try to stop the flow of guns. It has a lot to do with the funding that we supply to federal agencies like the ATF or to lawyers and department of justice and the direction that we give them, you know, ultimately federal law enforcement is supposed to listen to Congress about what its priorities are. Uh, and so I think we could do a better job focusing on gun violence as the most pressing issue. Uh, there's still a lot of federal law enforcement that is, is very focused on fighting the war on drugs. Uh, and with respect to fentanyl and heroin and things like that, that are killing people, that's valid. But I think there's still a lot of resources that go to things that may not be saving people's lives. Whereas if we focused on gun violence, we could save a lot more lives. Perfect. Thank you uh, um, so much for that thought out answer. And sticking a little bit around with the thing of public safety, because you're talking about, you know, crime, violence. There's also been a call for criminal justice reform. And, there, and I know you mentioned, uh, um, you know, some of the drug laws and, and things in your prior answer. As a senator, what do you think that you could be instrumental um, in changing when it comes to criminal justice reform? Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. When I, uh, before I was in Congress and I was a federal prosecutor here in Pittsburgh, so we work under the Department of Justice, the Attorney General was Eric Holder. And when I, in my first year, they brought all the brand new people down to Washington to hear from him. And I, I remember it really well. He got up in, in front of a ballroom full of career prosecutors, you know, like very, very motivated people to go out and make our name and make our cases and all that stuff. And he said, you know, one of our goals here in the Obama administration is for there to be fewer people in federal prison when we leave than when we got here. And I, I remember kind of being struck by that and thinking, but we're the prosecutors. You know, our, our job was, was to put people in prison who break the law. Uh, but his point was, was a really good one, which is that for a long time, we locked up a lot of people in this country for very long periods without necessarily it making us any safer. And so he wasn't trying to make the country less safe. He was trying to make the country more safe, but realizing that it had gotten to the point that, that too many people were in jail for too long. And so they put together some policies in that administration that we followed, uh, for example, to resentence people who had been sentenced for crack cocaine, even though, you know, white people using powder cocaine had gotten a much lighter sentence. We resentenced them. And some of those people walked out of jail that same day. Uh, they granted more pardons. They did things like, uh, for people that were succeeding in some of the rehabilitation programs, they got them into halfway houses earlier so that they were out of jail. And then in our office, uh, I helped us start these kind of deterrence programs where if you, if you caught somebody in a case 
and they really weren't a big player and say they had a job or some skills or a family that was willing to support them, we would give them a chance to turn their life around and then, you know, not indict them or, or drop the, the case if after a year's time, you know, they showed that they had really learned their lesson. We tried innovative things like that to reduce some of the load while still giving the public the benefit of, you know, being protected from people that were doing the wrong thing. And, and we have a bunch of policies like that in the Congress that, that we we can make into laws um, again if we probably only if we hold Democratic majority. Thank you for that. And my last question around the safety is: you talk a little bit about Craney's innovative innovative programs, um, and you also talked at the top of the hour about a lot of people feeling, you know, the weight of inflation. What are some of the economic advances advancements that you would hope? that you'll be able uh, to push, um, not only as a Democratic senator, uh, but as a person like in the majority, knowing that there is a lot of conversation of how particularly Southwestern PA is able to compete uh, you know, financially and globally. Yeah, great question, big question. So I, I think, first of all, like I told you, I always try to start off just very laser focused on the simple components of a family's budget and what are we doing to try to get their costs down and, and maybe their, their pay up a little bit. So that's kind of that category of things. But as it relates to like more economic development, which I think is kind of the heart of your question, um, there, there's a lot of really important things that we can do, especially focused, by the way, on, on the black community. So one of the things that came out of the pandemic was we would design these programs like the most well-known one was the Paycheck Protection Program where a small business could get money from the federal government to keep their people on the payroll in the early days of the pandemic. Well, it wasn't really designed very well for a lot of the smaller family run or newer businesses that um, a lot of black entrepreneurs tend to have. And the same thing is true in the Latino community, by the way. Um, it's just not the same exact culture of, of um, you know, dealing with the federal government maybe in that regard, like some more legacy and larger businesses have. So uh, one thing that we need to get better at is designing our small business programs to actually suit the customer, you know, and we eventually got it right on like the second or third try. We gave a lot more of the federal money to um, some of the community development, federal, our financial institutions, uh, and ones that have been a little bit more focused on minority entrepreneurs for a long time. And they were able to get the money where it needed to go, but that took a couple rounds. And so as a Senator, I'm someone who would be, trying to work with the community on the front end to get that right and get people the help that they deserve. Uh, there's another thing we did in, in the big infrastructure bill you might've heard about that we passed last year. It's an enormous amount of money over the next 10 years. And it's already, for example, if you saw the bridge that collapsed when President Biden came to visit, it's already rebuilding that bridge. So this is a really important federal spending. Um, one of the things that we put in there was giving a permanent budget to an entity called the Minority Business Development Agency. And it sits in the Department of Commerce. And their whole job is basically to help Black and Latino entrepreneurs get better access to credit and to federal contracts. Uh, so, you know, in this infrastructure bill, for example, uh, if you had a Black entrepreneur that owned a, a paving company uh, or even like a, even like a janitorial company or, or anyone that could do a little bit of business with the federal government, this agency's job would be to come in and help you make the connections that you need to make to get contracts like that. It's a very inside baseball type of world, federal contracts, it's the same people that get them over and over again. It's kind of complicated, but I believe that if we're going to spend $2 trillion of the public's money, you know, we shouldn't just build roads and bridges themselves. We should 
try to be rebuilding entire communities. And a big part of the community is, is having small and medium sized businesses that everyone feels like they can have a chance to compete in, not just the same old, you know, basically white general contractors. Um, so I think if we do a good job with an agency like that, we could start to change the, the history a little bit of, of who gets access to things like that, maybe encourage some business development as well. Perfect. And since you mentioned bridges, it's a perfect segue into my next question. We know the infrastructure bill has uh, promised, you know, billions of investments um, in the coming years. You know, we've already seen some of that work right here in Pennsylvania. What other um, projects would you like to see um, outside of, of the bridges invested in Pennsylvania? Um, and as you go, you know, and, and lobby, whether you're fellow congressman or your fellow senators in, in November, what are some other uh, projects you would like to see invested in here in Pennsylvania? Definitely. Um, well, when it comes to, you know, just sort of basic transportation infrastructure, I would say, let's, let's keep remembering public transit. You know, there's this whole issue right now of trying to help people get back into the workforce and, and earn more and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, the Port Authority is, is a key component in that because you have so many people that don't really live all that close to where they work uh, and they may not own a car. So, you know, increasing the amount of, of bus lines, uh, the frequency that those buses run, just doing more to give people flexible options to get to work is, is an enormous thing we can do to help people. And that kind of falls squarely in transportation and infrastructure for sure. Um, long term, there's a lot we need to do with the energy grid and how we make energy to deal with climate change. That's another big area that I'm happy to talk about. Um, but then I, I would say the last thing we need to be thinking about here is, you know, th there's sometimes when we talk about like energy and climate change and infrastructure, we get very focused on the future and what industries are going to look like in the future. And that's exciting. It's important. But I think if we did a better job really focusing on what are the jobs that people have right now? What are the fastest growing jobs? What are the jobs where you need a lot of people that we're not getting? And, and how can we get more people into these jobs where they can earn more? That's a really important way to help people now, you know, not sometime in the future. So one of the fastest growing jobs in the, in Pennsylvania is basically a home healthcare aid. So someone who goes uh, to a senior citizen's home or someone's with a disability, and it might only be for a few hours a day for that person, but you know, you're helping bathe them, change them, feed them, do the, the ordinary tasks of everyday life that a senior who lives alone or someone with a disability might not be able to do. Very important work. It's actually crucial, not just for being kind of humane, but uh, it's really good if we can keep seniors in their homes longer because it's a lot less expensive than putting them into a nursing home. And actually most people prefer to stay in their own homes too. So it's a really good way to do things. Um, it's a little hard to recruit people into that workforce right now because the pay is so low. A lot of them make only 12 or $13 an hour. And a lot of the funding comes from the government. So you can't just raise the pay. You know, when Amazon goes up to $16 an hour, the home healthcare workers don't go up also their, their rate is fixed by the government. So I've been really trying to see if we can raise wages for those people. It's a lot of women and a lot of women of color that do that kind of work. Uh, same thing for people that work in nursing homes themselves, by the way, or, or long-term care. It's a huge growing industry in our state because we just happen to be a more elderly state and we have a lot of people aging in to the time when they need these services. We don't have the workforce that's ready for it. So if we could pass a bill to put more money into, into this sort of part of the healthcare workforce where people could do these jobs, take care of seniors, keep them in their homes and earn enough to make a living and stay in that profession, maybe even form a union and be able to bargain for good benefits over time. Uh, and then I would say childcare is very similar in that it, it, you need government funding to make sure enough people are 
getting paid enough to provide childcare for everyone that needs it. So those are two areas I think we could make a big impact on the economy of Western Pennsylvania. Thank you so much. And talking about, you know, the spills and this legislation, we know all of this is really encumbered upon um, people that go out and vote, not only in the May 17th primary, uh, but in election in November. Are you at all worried that the national conversation is going to have a negative impact um, on the ability for you uh, uh, to run your race and to, and to speak specifically about um, issues that impact people in Pennsylvania? Yes, I am. Uh, that's just part of politics, though. So that that part of it is really nothing new for me. And I think if your viewers are looking for something that makes me different than the other people I'm running against in this Senate primary, uh, I've faced Republicans before head to head. I've done it three times in congressional elections and every time the national conversation has affected my campaign. You know, you if you watch a lot of TV here, you might remember Donald Trump came to my district three times, each one of those campaigns to tell people not to vote for me. Um, and he sort of started a national conversation that Democrats were against the police and against natural gas and all these things that are sort of popular in districts like mine. Um, and we overcame it mostly by hard work and showing up and answering people's questions so that if they heard Donald Trump say that, you know, I hated the police and I would never do anything to help them, they could ask me about that and I would answer them. And I would answer them by just telling them what I had actually done already in Congress and what my record was. Uh, and I, I, I think that's going to be a good pro approach in this campaign as well if I get a chance to be the nominee. Um, and along with that, you know, you gave a really, um, you know, impassioned plea uh, right after January 6th and talked to me about like Act 77. And still, you know, two years later, we're still having these same conversations. What are you telling people when they're asking about, you know, election integrity? Uh, because we still are, are going through, you know, locally, um, bills just we don't may not know what November election looks like. And so what are you telling people to make sure that they feel comfortable um, to vote and motivated to show up to the polls? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, the, the laws in Pennsylvania have not changed one bit since 2020. And that's thankfully because we have Tom Wolf as the governor. So your vote is going to be protected and it's going to count this year. Um, unfortunately, none of us can can say what's going to come in the future because it, this has again, unfortunately, become a partisan issue. You know, the Democrats just want everybody that wants to vote to be able to vote. We don't only want Democrats to vote. We're not trying to do anything in our own favor here. We just believe it's a fundamental right of every human being, every American, at least, um, to be able to vote in our elections. Uh, the Republicans don't look at it that way. They have these crazy convoluted theories that they use to try to justify it, but they really are trying to take away the right of people to vote. And they're even willing to mess around with the vote counting process so that even after all the votes are cast, uh, they want to control who actually counts them. So that's really the issue at stake this year when you go to vote is, is whether you want to protect the same right to vote for everybody going forward. Um, and, you know, with someone like me, you'll get a vote in the Senate for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which we would use at the federal government level to stop what's happening in all these other states where they're trying to limit the right to vote. That is so crucially important. And it's really not an exaggeration to say that if we don't win this Senate race in Pennsylvania, we probably won't ever pass that bill, at least in the near term, because there's so few Senate seats available to get us into the majority to be able to pass. it. We've passed it in the House three times since I've been there. Uh, it's never even gotten a vote in the Senate, and it probably won't until we elect another Democratic senator or two to get into the majority. And I'm um, talking about very important Senate votes, we know 
um, a lot of the civil rights protections come really come down to um, a Senate vote. And we know here in Pennsylvania, there is a lot of, you know, racial uh, disparities, particularly when it comes to maternal health and maternal mortality. And um, Vice President Kamala Harris has been rolling out some uh, future support um, and uh, legislation uh, to help investment in maternal mortality. What um, things are you looking for uh, to support um, as a senator when it comes to issues that will allow for things to be more equitable uh, for everyday Pennsylvanians? Yeah, it's, it, it is really shocking um, how inequitable it is uh, for women of color having children in our society still. Uh, and I have, I have one son. We're actually have a, a daughter in, in June. So uh, I know that feeling a little bit of being in the hospital and, and kind of how uncertain and scary it is, you know, for especially your first child. Um, wanting a sense of security about what's going to happen. And, and I think everyone should have the same sense of security, no matter whether they're white or black. So uh, in the House of Representatives, I have a colleague named Lauren Underwood, who's an African-American woman from the suburbs of Chicago, and she really has taken the lead on this issue. And I've just tried to support her in every way that I can. Uh, she has a whole, actually a, a whole long list of things that we need to pass into law that she calls the Momnibus Bill. Um, but the most important one, I think, is we would like to give automatic Medicaid health coverage to every new mother in the United States, no matter who they are or how much money they earn or, or what they look like or anything, automatic for one year from when you give birth uh, to make sure that in those crucial postpartum months, uh, mom is covered. No matter what happens to her, she's covered. She can go to the doctor, go to the hospital, get mental health treatment if she needs it. Um, we That's one of many things we passed in the House of Representatives, and it was ignored in the Senate. And not a single Republican voted for it. And that was one where I was, I, I shouldn't be surprised at this point, I guess, but you know, they're the party that, that they call themselves pro-life, meaning they want every pregnancy to, to have a birth at the end of it. Um, and they always say that they're going to take care of new mothers if they make that decision. And yet here they had the opportunity to vote for a government program that would actually give health insurance to every new mother for a year to make it easier for them to have children. Uh, and every one of these guys voted against it. So it shows you what they're about at the end of the day. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, and I really appreciate you, you know, talking about like the the bill that uh, uh, Congressman Warren is putting um, out. Um, and as we wrap up, there has been, like I said, a lot of things happening, you know, on, on this campaign trail. And you have really uh, been talking about not only your vision, um, but what sets you apart from your other uh, colleagues. We know, you know, that, the leading controversy around, you know, the, the jogger situation, like here uh, in Pennsylvania, was one of, you know, the other uh, participants in the race. Has that message been resonating uh, with people across Pennsylvania? And what do you want that the story to be that now where we're talking about the lack of an apology or if there's going to be an apology? Um, what is the takeaway that you want uh, people uh, once they hear the story? Because we talk about how, you know, back and forth politics is, but you've been able to bring this to light in um, a very nuanced way. And, and can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Um, yes, it has come up a lot, especially when I've been in Philadelphia. Um you know, and it, that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone with all that's gone on in this country, you know, particularly a case like the Ahmaud Arbery case. Uh, I think 
you know, there, there's more and more attention to the fact that it's just wrong to go around pointing guns at unarmed black people, right? We should have known that already, but we've never known it more than we know it right now. Uh, in this case in particular, I think it's important to realize that, uh, you know, there was never any active shooter found. Uh, Chris, the person that, that Fetterman pointed the gun at, was dressed as a jogger with earphones in and had no gun or anything else on him. So uh, it was a case where what Fetterman did was wrong. There's really no debate about whether what he did was wrong. Um, it was wrong. And so I think that's where I start with it from. If you do the wrong thing, everyone does something wrong at some point in their life. I'm not saying everyone does something like that, but everyone does something wrong. I know I have, you know, we're all sinners at the end of the day. But what I was taught about, about being in a position of leadership is that if you do the wrong thing, being accountable, the word accountability, and I'm, I'm, I come out of the military, as some of you know, accountability is a big value for us. Um, you admit it, you say you're sorry, but most importantly, you just acknowledge that you were wrong so that people understand that you know what's right and what's wrong. And they think about that for your future decision-making. And if you're asking what I think the biggest issue here is, uh, it's, it's not that John did the wrong thing or made a mistake. He made a big mistake. But if you do that, all you have to do is say you're sorry and acknowledge that it was the wrong thing to do. And he won't do that. And as a result, the story that he tells about what happened doesn't really add up. I mean, he says there's an active shooter. There was no active shooter ever found. He says that he was worried about a school shooting. It was a Saturday afternoon. He says now that he didn't point the gun at the guy. At the time, the police report said that he did. You know, so, I mean, there's just things like that that don't really add up. And when you get into a general election and more people are being exposed to Fetterman and his story for the first time, especially in such a high stakes race like this one, uh, you know, even a small number of people getting turned off by him because of that and because of this sort of weird way that he deals with it could cost us the whole election, you know, in addition to, again, the fact that it is wrong to do something like that. So I think it has to be talked about right now. It's uncomfortable. I know that. Um, and, and I try not to bring it up any more than I have to, but I do think it's an important issue to consider uh, for a leadership position of, of this importance. Thank you for that. And you talked about, you know, right and wrongs. What are some of the things that you want people uh, to take away from this interview, from getting to know you, um, especially right now, you know, we're having this larger conversation about moderates, progressives. We're all, you know, trying to do the right thing when it comes to uh, for our politics. What is what do you want people uh, to know about you? Sure. Um, well, I think on, on the point about moderates and progressives, uh, I'm not really sure who that distinction helps at the end of the day, other than Republicans. It sort of keeps us focused on each other and our differences while, you know, they try to get away with murder. So I think if all of us agree that what we are trying to do is make actual progress in the real world, not just sort of take stands, but but achieve results that make people's lives better. And I've mentioned a lot of specific bills tonight that I, th I think could do that, that I've supported, then we're pretty much all on the same side. And the question becomes, um, what does it take to actually win a seat like this to get to the place where we need to cast those votes? Um, and that's where I think I just give you a better chance at that than anybody else running for this for some of the reasons we've talked about. And I, I just want to add to that, that that I've mentioned a couple of times accountability, and, and I also really believe in respect. And I think that part of what you know this interview is for me is a continuation of what I've done for four years of, of showing up really anywhere that anyone that I represent or wants to represent has questions or wants to talk about the issues. And there's no question I'm afraid of or that I won't take. Hopefully, if you take nothing away else away from this interview, you'll see that 
I tried to answer the questions that were asked. You may or may not always agree with my answers, but I really do try to answer them. Uh, and I think you deserve to expect that from anyone that wants to represent you in any capacity, whether it's the U.S. Senate, you know, down to your school board or city council or anything in between. Thank you. And so as we come to a close, if we could just talk about, one, how people can get in contact with your campaign. And then our, our final question we ask every uh, panelist is, what is bringing you joy? So um, how can we get in contact with your campaign? And the wrap up is, what is bringing you joy? What is bringing me joy? Yes. Is that what you said? Okay, mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, you can get in contact with my campaign uh, at connorlam.com. Um, and there's a lot of ways to, to find us there, ask more questions, sign up to volunteer to help us. We're a very grassroots campaign. We'd love to have your help uh, here in these final three weeks. Um, when you ask what is bringing me joy, uh, the first thing I think of is I, my son is, uh, I guess he's almost, he's about 16 and a half months old right now. So he's, he's up, he's walking, he's running around. He's like, he's super joyful all the time. Um, and sometimes when he, when his bath is immediately over, he's so excited to get back out and run around again that he slips out of his mom's hands and basically runs around our house naked until he falls over from being wet and, and slipping. And so my wife will catch that on video from time to time and just send it to me out where I am on the campaign trail with no explanation. It, it's the, it's the hardest I laugh and the happiest I get all day. Well, thank you so much to Congressman Connor Lamb for taking a moment to join us for the Sunday night sit down. We wish you the best of luck on your campaign. It's great talking to you, Miracle. Thank you for having me on and for everything you guys are doing. Of course. Thank you so much. And again, this has been another edition of the Sunday night sit down. As a reminder, the deadline to register to vote is going to be on May 2nd. That's going to be tomorrow, y'all. If you want to vote on the May 17th primary, you must you must be registered to vote. As a reminder, you know, we just went through redistricting. So if you have moved, um, you need to go back and double check and update your voter registration because you may have moved into a new district and you may not be aware. So again, please, please, please make sure you are registered to vote. Make sure you have gone in and updated your voter registration um, by the deadline on Monday, May 2nd. Again, with redistricting, you may be in a totally new district, a totally new ward. So again, you want to double check. You only have one time. Again, that is one time uh, to vote. If you've moved and your voter file is not correct in Pennsylvania, you're allowed one courtesy vote at your prior precinct. If their information is incorrect, you've done your courtesy already, you can only do a provisional ballot. So you want to make sure that you are registered to vote. Lastly, we have a lot of great things happening. So you wanna make sure you save the date uh, for Saturday, May 14th. It's gonna be one of our um, voter pop-up parties as well as May 10th. Where you'll be joining um, a couple organizations for a get out the vote tour. So again, make sure you are registered to vote, and then we'll see you back next Sunday for another edition of the Sunday Night Sit Down. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your week. Bye.